Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Hi, I am Janice Leibovitz, coming to you from the comfort of my TV room. You are our People of the Book, and hopefully this week we will not have any. Um, back here with what is now our new normal, and we are all broadcasting from the comfort of our own homes um, in our new lockdown. How have you all been? Um, you can always SMS us on 34519, just on Telegram, 0619-51019. All the messages get sent through to I have not been outside. I don't know what's going on around me. I'm in a little computer, as I think we all are. And my guest today, the show, um, I'm hoping Marion one of the members of our show, and Mary and Jill are going to be chatting to me about she's recently to us also about what her plans are for this lockdown, what she's going to be doing, what she's going to be reading. Um, hello, Mary and Jill, are you still with us? New normal, and our new normal seems to be um, glitches. So apologies for that once again. I'm back on the line with my guest, Mary and Jill Bregman. Hi, Mary and Jill, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me now, Janice? Yes, I can hear you, and I'm hoping that everyone out there can hear us too. And Mary and Jill, how are you doing under lockdown here? Well, we are managing. We are managing, <clears throat> and we just have to take delight in every day and the things around us and the ability to communicate via WhatsApp and Zoom and Skype and so on to keep in touch with each other. Yes, you're 100% right. We do have to make the most of every minute and every day and stay in contact as much as possible. We're very lucky in this day and age that we have the technology and the ability to do that. And we have the means to do it. And we are staying in touch globally um, with with our friends and family around the world. And unfortunately, um, at a time when we were all hoping to be together, um, we... Are not, but we're still all connected. Thank goodness. And, yes. um, we're, we're able to, to all be together, together apart, I think is what they're calling it. So, exactly. so we're going to chat today, um, particularly about one book, not, we're going to chat about one book that you've read, but we're going to talk about, um, what you're planning to read during this lockdown and what you're planning to do. And a funny thing that that's come up, I'm finding with a lot of the reading groups I belong to and a lot of the people that I'm in contact with who are readers and reviewers and people in the book world. I don't know if you are finding the same um, with the people that you're in contact with, because I know that you are in contact with a lot of people who read and who are in this kind of industry. People are saying that they are finding it very difficult to read. They're not able to concentrate. They're not able to settle to anything. They're not able to um, kind of get into kind of any reading flow of any sort. And they're not, they've lost their mojo is what they're saying. I don't know if you're finding the same thing. 
Well, I am finding it to some extent. I think we've become so obsessed with checking the news and reading on the internet reports that we're not giving ourselves the space and time to read. But I think that will settle down as we move more into this time. Um, I think that maybe we also set, need to set, make ourselves more disciplined and say, well, today I am going to spend an hour or an hour and a half to read and try and divide the day up into segments so that we're not just allowing everything to overwhelm us and we don't get down to any one task properly. Yes, I think that there is that feeling of, of being unsettled and that lack of routine and I know that that um, for myself there is that feeling of there's definitely a lack of routine and a feeling of um, being very out of it. And initially there was a feeling of a um, bit of a holiday mood, but that's definitely passed and it was very short-lived. And there's there's a feeling I think people are feeling very unsettled and uncertain. And um, I think once people do settle into this and people are able to settle down and I think people were feeling a sense of discomfort and I think that was lending itself to the lack of ability to sit down and able, I think reading gives people a sense of comfort and people weren't feeling that. And I think that was what was lending itself to not being able to, to read. But, yeah. but what we always what we always say about reading is reading takes you on journeys to places that you aren't able to visit. And this is the perfect time to be able to visit those places, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, that's true. And in fact, I did uh, read something. We talk about different places, physically, geographically, historically. I have um, gone through quite a bit of A Loot of Eleven Strings by Jane Kirsten, which is one of the books that you recommended I talk about. So yes. um, I don't know if you want to start off with that one. Yes, I think let's do that because this was one of the books that was um, given to our book club by by um, one of our publicists, That's and it was Janine. Yeah. It was Janine at a Double Day, and let's let's chat about this. I think we possibly might be going into an ad break, so I think maybe let's. I don't know if you want to start chatting about the book. We might get interrupted by a break. And if we are, we'll continue after that. So, yes, start telling us about this book. Okay, so the book's title is A Loot of Eleven Strings. It's written by a South African author called Jane Kirsten, K-I-R-S-T-E-N. And she lives in the Boerland region, which is that sort of wine-growing region around Stellenbosch Paul uh, area. Um, the subtitle is a story of how it might have been. I'll talk a bit about that subtitle in a minute. The genre is it's a historical novel set in the early 16th century. And the prelude, a very short prelude, explains the subtitle. She says, we must think about the days of old and the tribes around the campfire, the people around the campfire, where the storyteller told a story that's essentially true, or the facts may be true, but he used his imagination to embellish them. So therefore, this story is based on true events, but 
much of the author's imagination is uh, used as one would expect from a historical yes. novel. Uh, I personally don't think an apology is needed because I think this is a perfectly acceptable way of portraying past events through fictional characters, um, with other minor events and dialogue. Uh, one expects this. You weren't alive at the time. You can't, you don't know uh, all the details. So you can, in a historical novel, the author's perfectly at liberty to portray them through her own imagination. Right. Why? Carry on. Yeah. And I agree with you. I don't think authors um, should justify when they have fictionalized accounts of, of factual events because that's that's what you expect. You know, if they just say fictionalized account or whatever, they don't need an added justification for that because that's what you're expecting from a novel. Yes. So this uh, this author, Jane Kirsten, I said she lives in the wine-growing area of South Africa. She was prompted in her interest in the period of the Reformation of France and the Huguenots because she is of Huguenot descent herself. And the book deals with that whole period of the um, Reformation and the opposition to the popes and Catholicism, as you probably know, there was a great deal of power and wealth associated with the Catholic Church. And those who opposed that were became known as the Protestants, and they were persecuted. I'm going to have to interrupt you because we're going to have to go to an ad break. But we're going to continue with this review straight after that. So let's go yeah. into that break and carry on after that. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. Hi, I'm back and I'm chatting to my guest, Marion Jill Bregman. We are coming to you from the comfort of our homes. And before the break, Marion Jill was talking to us about a book that she's read recently that was given to our High FM book club. It's called A Loot of Eleven Strings and it's by Jane Kirsten. Marion Jill, sorry to have interrupted you by that ad break, but let's continue with your review of this book. Okay, the main characters in this book are the De La Porte family who are in the bookselling business. And one day the patriarch, who becomes the grandfather, pastor arrives at his door, his little bookselling shop. It's a manuscript in German and he translated it. It's the right, he translates it into French. It's the writings of Martin Luther. And, uh, this, um, uh, patriarch, Arnoux, becomes obsessed and converted to these teachings, as do his son and grandson later. And they become, particularly the grandson Luke, the main protagonists of the story. So in the 460 pages, it's a very long novel, ah, it follows what Luke happens. <laughs> yes, it is indeed. It's a thick novel. It follows what happens to Luke as he's forced to escape from France. He becomes um, persecuted. He becomes a refugee. He escapes from the French religious wars of the 16th century and eventually finds a friendship, in fact, from Catholics and from others unexpectedly. And this, so this deals with how these people who became known as the Huguenots 
fled this persecution and as we know, many of them eventually fled to America and some came to South Africa. However, she does not deal with the South African French Huguenots, whom we know settled in what was then called or became known as Franchhoek, the French Quarter in South Africa, and established these wonderful wine farms like Haute Cabriere and La Motte, and many of whose names we know in South Africa, like the Fouillons and the Duplessis and the Dupries and the uh, Pinars, you know, they became uh, Dutch, um, they became incorporated more into the Dutch language, which was um, prevalent at the Actually, quite interesting that she doesn't deal yeah. with that because I was actually about to say that's such a, a large part of, of South African history, the French Huguenots. So it's actually quite odd that that part of, of the story is not dealt with, as you say. No, and for me, that's probably the biggest downside of the book because we have that interest in South Africa. Uh, the French Huguenots made a, an indelible mark in our country, language, culture, the wine growing, um, just the history of that part of the Western Cape. And it's a great sadness for me that was not included. Um, the other thing that I struggled with is she's trying to write in a style that's appropriate to the historical period. But in so doing, it becomes almost romantic, and I use that word in inverted commas, and therefore less real and authentic. I think she's doing this to um, perhaps draw the reader in, but for me, it's it's less real. Uh, it's you know, once you get into it, we are not the people sitting around the campfire, the uncritical, captivated. We are the the intelligent reader reading it on a page, so it becomes less authentic. For me, I'm not saying that's for everybody. Somebody else might like that style, but that's just me as a critical reader. Yes. So it sounds like, I I don't know, a bit of a mishmash of a book. Um, and, And for a South African writer, to have not actually focused on the more South African aspect of the book. As I say, I found that a bit strange. So, yeah. so you're finding a local author who's writing about something that, that you would expect to be a local topic, but hasn't, who's veered off topic. I'm not yes, trying to describe this. Yeah. But, yeah. But you know, if we can then move on, if you don't mind, there are books I'd like to recommend for people who may may have them in their li- on their shelves or get access of them being delivered, which I think would be wonderful to read right now. Because I think I'm, I'm not sure whether delivery is possible, but I know that a lot of people do read electronically, and um, oh, there's a possibility oh. of that. So yes. yes. Please recommend away. We would love to hear your recommendations. And that is one of the reasons why I'm chatting to you today, because 
I'm sure people don't always want to hear me droning on about my recommendations because that becomes quite one-dimensional. We'd love to hear recommendations from other people. That's why you're here, Mary and Jill. So let's hear what you will recommend for people to read during the next few weeks. Thanks, Janice. Well, the first one I'd recommend, funny enough, <clears throat> is a woman of firsts, having said the first one. It's written <laughs> by Edna Aden Ismail. Highly recommended. It's an autobiography. Uh, have you read it, Janice, or heard about this book? No, I haven't read it, and I haven't actually heard about it. Okay. So I must tell you about this book. Um, Edna Aden Ismail was born in Somaliland. I think she's still alive, although she's in her 80s now. When I say Somaliland, she keeps making a difference between Somaliland and Somalia. I didn't know there was a difference, but apparently Somalia was Italian Somalia, uh, and she was born in Somaliland. And the the essence of the story is that she becomes very concerned about health care, education, and superstition, especially among women. Her father was a prominent doctor in Somaliland. He's her hero, absolute hero, and much loved by all the people. Everybody apparently knew this man. Now, because of him, she actually got an education, which was very unusual. Girls did not go to school. In those days, as I say, she's in her 80s. But she was sent by her father to relatives in Italian Somalia, and she got an education. And then she went to England, where she studied mid- midwifery at top, top hospitals in London. And she wow. returned so that must have been very rare for that, that era. Very she's the first midwife in the whole of Somaliland. And wow. she returned. She decides, I mean, she was offered jobs in England, but she wanted to go back to her country. And later, she marries the first president of Somaliland, so that's another first. And she herself becomes the first foreign female foreign minister of Somaliland. And she builds the first proper hospital in Somaliland, which is gynecology and obstetric wards, you know, dedicated to women. And she literally builds it brick by brick. They make homemade brick. She builds this hospital and dedicates it to her father. And she's totally dedicated to her patients. That's a top priority for her. But there are fascinating snippets in this book, things that we know nothing about. For example, the woman traditionally gave birth squatting at the door of their hut facing outwards. People would look, you know, people come and look at them. The baby would be brought directly onto the sand. Can you imagine how that would be a health hazard? And she prevailed on them at least to put down a mat or a blanket onto the sand so the baby and the the blood and everything would come onto a blanket, which she told them they must wash. She crusades against female genital mutilation, FGM, now, when she was eight, eight years old, it was done to her. She talks about being cut. Her father was out of the country at the time because she knows he would not have permitted it. But she was pulled by her female aunt, relatives, auntie and her mother, 
and they pulled her legs apart and she was cut, stitched with thorns and um, incredibly painful. And she talks about all the problems this leads to for women um, giving birth, very difficult because they're heavily scarred, uh, difficulty with periods, difficulty having sex. Uh, difficulty urinating. I mean, health problems serious as a result of this being done by the female uh, relatives. And um, uh, she herself, despite being a midwife, and she's not sure if it's related to this, because cannot have children. She never has children. Great, great sadness for her, yes, despite having fertility treatment. So it's sadly ironic that... Uh, but and she talks about the only experience after. Yeah. Uh, and she perseveres against all the odds. There is turmoil in the country. The military descend. She's forced to go into um, isolation, talk about isolation first, and told she's <laughs> not allowed to go up. But she tells the soldiers, gives them a piece of her mind, tells them she's still going to tend to her patients. If somebody needs her and giving birth, she'll be there. She gets in her little car and she trundles off and she attends to her patients. So we learn from this autobiography about true courage, perseverance. She's a very inspiring woman and really a true hero of our time. Hello, I can hear you now. I lost you there. Okay, did you hear the end there? But, uh, courage, perseverance, and she's really a hero of our time, Janice. This woman okay. is quite I'm remarkable. I'm going to ask you, um, after the show, all the recommendations you make, will you email the titles and authors to me so that I can put them on our Facebook page, please, for our listeners? Definitely. Okay. Thank you. Should I go on to the next one, if you can hear me? Okay, just, just recap that. That was A Woman of Firsts, and who was the author? A Woman of Firsts by Edna Aiden, A-I-D-A-N, Ismail, I-S-M-A-I-L. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Things she points out in this book that the practice of cutting little girls' genital mutilation is not an Islamic practice. It's a cultural practice in many parts of Central and East Africa. But she, and it's a superstition in many ways, so she is a big crusader against it. Right. But she sounds like a fascinating personality and an amazing life that she's lived. Quite remarkable, yeah. Now, have you read the book by uh, Elsa Jaber called The Sack? Sorry, you what? Know, it's called Cool the Sack or Cool the Sack by Elsa Jaber. You know, she have, wrote the, the Long Journey of Poppy Nongana. And that has been recently made into a film. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yes. So she wrote this memoir when she was 95, a few years, about two or three years ago. I'm not sure if she's still alive, but I just find it amazing that a woman in her mid-90s, uh, it was, I think, published when she was 95. She might have started it when she was 92 or 93. 
Wow. It's hard to believe she could sit into a typewriter or computer and have the discipline and the determination to continue writing. And and it makes um, it, it the question, you know, what is what is our excuse when you hear things exactly, like that? Exactly. Now it's set in a Cape Town retirement home where she she goes to live in this retirement home when she's in her eighties. And it's conveniently located across the street from the hospital, as she says. Because <laughs> when people die, they just cast them across the road <laughs> or they get ill. <laughs> and she speaks about elderly characters at the home. There's a, a, a rather strange Englishman across the corridor. She speaks about meeting her friends for coffee and little celebrations and how they talk about their ailments and, uh, you know, commiserate with one another. She calls her walker. She has to use walk with the aid of a walker. She calls it Storm Yapi and how she nicknames it. (laughs) 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 And she delights in poking fun at herself, the ailment she has. Her difficulties with the digital age and how the young people have to help her and how she's out of touch with things. It's such a lovely, light, gentle humor. It's very readable. And I think it'll appeal to all those who are elderly and who feel more closed in because she creates her own meaning every day. She loves the garden. The garden gives her joy. She likes to walk, go into the garden with Storm Yapi, her walker, <laughs> every day. <laughs> and she just has joy every day. I think it would give younger people who would read a book like this um, a different perspective on older people that that they are that they still laugh in them and that they still have a sense of humor and that they can laugh at themselves because I think that yeah a lot of younger people tend to forget that and that they just look at the outer and not at the inner. Exactly, exactly. And you, she, this woman has still got such a zest for life. And, and her descriptions of characters and the people she meets in the retirement and the staff and her praise for the staff. I mean, it's just delightful. And uh, it's an easy read, not a, not a long book, a short read. And yeah, highly recommended. And that one is, is called A Sack by Elsa Joubert. Yeah, as I said, she wrote The Long Journey of Poppy Nongena, which, as you just mentioned, was just being made into a movie, and I think it's on circuit still. Yes, I think it is on, on circuit, and um, I, I I must be honest, I have seen the trailer for it. I don't think I could sit through it. It looks absolutely devastating and heartbreaking, and it is, but it is vital viewing, I think, for for those who, who need to know South African history. South it is, it is history a, dark days of humanity. Yeah. yeah, no, it is considered one of the great pieces of literature to come out of Africa, especially during the apartheid era. So, yeah, but this is totally different. This is a life, yes. not a <laughs> I could call it. It sounds like she needed 
of life, really. Mary and Jill, before you go into the next review, we're going to go to an ad break. Oh. And after, after that, we are going to carry on with, with um, your recommendations for what to read during our lockdown after this break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. And I am back with my guest, Marion Jill Bregman, who is giving us recommendations on what to read during lockdown. Marion Jill, are you still with us? I am, yes. Right, let's carry on. What are you recommending for us to read while we are tucked away and staying safe in our homes during the next few weeks? Well, another light read, but it has somber elements to it, is uh, one of the Alexandra Alexandra Puller books, Travel Light, Move Fast. Now, I'm sure you know that she um, has written lots of other books with catchy titles like Leaving Before the Rains Come, Don't Let's yes. Go to the Dogs Tonight, Cocktail Hour, Under the Tree of Forgetfulness. I've read uh, most of those. Um, and I just love her writing. I think she's got a wonderful, zippy, zany style and a little bit off the wall, but it's, it, it's fascinating. Her stories, um, mostly set in Zambia and Africa because she was born in Zambia. Uh, her father's British, but he moved to Africa and her mother was born in Kenya. So this book, one of her latest, Travel Light, Move Fast, um, was uh, primarily about her father, Tim Fuller, and the profound impact and loss she feels when he dies. Don't be put off by that because it is not a sad book. She always remembers him with the, the twinkle in his eye. And she started writing this about two and a half years after his death. And the book opens with him dying in Budapest. The parents were on one of their very rare overseas trips from Africa. Um, and she describes what goes on there because to die in a foreign country is very difficult. Yeah, I would but, imagine so. Yeah, to repatriate, you know. All of that. So that is, is, is oh. somber. But she writes about the characters in the hospital and the differences. Very interesting. Now, her father says, just before he dies, he says, do you know what the secret is to life, Bobo? That's his nickname for her. Mm-hmm. So she says, no, what? And he says, maybe there's no secret. It's just what it is. Uh, life is just what it is, and you must make the most of it. And he says that to her, and he uses the phrase, before I give up the ghost, and that's it. But she talks about growing up with these, I think, mad, crazy parents. <laughs> but they were really resilient, resourceful, nothing phased them growing in, up in Zambia. For example, there was a python living in a hole at the end of the road. And so her mother says, well, go down to the path. Just ignore the python. Don't go near the python. It's fine. (laughs) Then (laughs) the the builder doesn't get an architect. He says he had an architect who was a friend. But this house starts to fall down. So she can see the sky through the roof. 
So Barbara says, okay, you'll see the birds. I mean, that's very lovely. I mean, does it matter? <laughs> and then all sorts of creepy crawlies come into the house. And, you know, ignore them. They're not going to kill you. And at the end of the road, at the bottom of the garden, there's a pub, which her father, of course, adores, this pub. It's good for a pint or a gin or a whiskey. And he's always having one every day. And that's who he was. It's sad and poignant in parts, but it also shows resilience, the, the strength of the human spirit. And it's full of delightful humor. Sometimes you just laugh out loud at the crazy things your parents do and get up to. And other times you gasp and think, I could never cope with living in the outback of Zambia, you know, miles from civilization. But they, nothing right. daunted them. And they just cope with everything. And managed and, and survived yeah. it all. She survived it. She, she was very profoundly impacted by her father's death, he meant the world to her, much like uh, the previous book I mentioned with um, uh, Edna Aden Ismail, whose father inspired her to become a midwife. Here, the way her father and mother, especially her father, handles life, teaches her how to cope with her own tragedies and difficulties, which she does have setbacks in her own life. Um, so it's a celebration of her father's life, basically. Also sounds beautiful and it sounds also like the perfect read that, um, you know, to enjoy when you are, you know, we're tucked away in our homes and we're, we want our minds taken off whatever's going on around us. And this sounds like the type of book that would do that when you, you want to, to hear about other people's lives and the type of lives they've had, the upbringing they've had takes you to another place and another time and another life and that's that's what we want to to learn about we want to hear about that when we want when we read books I, I want to to know about other people and their lives and their journeys and where they've come from so that sounds like the perfect type of book to do that absolutely and and have a laugh into the bargain yes yes well that's always an added bonus isn't it <laughs> isn't it I just want to mention one other book. I only just started re reading it fairly recently, and I'll tell you why in a minute I'm going to <clears throat> refer to this book. It's called Little Soldiers. And the subtitle is An American Boy, A Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve. And it's by an American Chinese woman called Lenora Chu, C-H-U. Now, I'll tell you why I'm finding this book quite interesting. Because we know what's happening in China with COVID-19 and how the Chinese coped uh, by literally locking down and dictating exactly what people could and could not do and making sure they absolutely complied with these rules. And when you read this book, you begin to understand better the Chinese education system. Because this woman, can you hear me still, uh, Janice? Yes, yes, I can hear you. So this woman, Lenora Chu, she's a journalist, an American journalist, and her husband, uh, Rob, who sounds like he's uh, a white American from uh, Minnesota, they both 
uh, go to Shanghai and decide to work, live and work there for a while. And she puts her little boy, who's three, into a Chinese school. And she compares it with the education she received growing up in Texas, which was all about cheerleading and the football team and the high school prom and, you know, never listened to her parents. She was a bit rebellious and went through those teenage rebellious years. And she sees how these kids in China are disciplined and taught to obey. And at first she's horrified. And thinks, no, her, you know, her little boy who was rambunctious and, and did his own thing is told to be disciplined. He has to sit down when the teachers tell him to. He has to draw within the lines, not just draw anywhere. He has to eat foods he doesn't like because that's what they are told to do. And you realize that that whole education system is geared to raising people who live within the rules. So it's not difficult to understand how when they're told to lock down, they lock down. Yes. And Mary and Jola, I'm going to have to interrupt that because we need to take an ad break. I mean, that does sound fascinating and vastly different to the way the rest of the world seems to run their education systems. We are going to chat briefly about that when we wrap up after this ad break. I love it when you this is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Um, yes, I'm back. And before the break, Marion Jill Bregman, my guest, was chatting about um, one of her book recommendations, which is Little Soldiers by Lenora Chu. And it sounds fascinating because it's about the Chinese education system, which is vastly different, as we know, from education in the rest of the world. I think the rest of the world educates in a much more free and open way. And I think that's evolved because years ago it was a lot stricter than it is now. Am I correct in in saying that? Because I know that that years ago, I know when I was at school, there was a lot more, um, I think it was a lot more rigid than it is today. Well, I, I agree. When I went to school, I mean, we had to stand up when uh, somebody came in the room, an adult, and if you put your hand up if you wanted to leave the room. And the parents did not get so involved. And, uh, you know, when at school was the parent, you know, didn't have much to do with the parents. <clears throat> I just, and also I think the relationships that, that the, what do they call them? Learners, learners. Um, yeah. The, the relationships they have with their teachers are so different today. There's so much more banter between the kids and their teachers. I mean, we would never dare chat to the teachers the way they do today. They have the relationships that they have with their teachers are so different to, to the, we didn't have relationships with our teachers other than the fact that that's the teacher and we were, well, we were pupils back then. Now they're not. They're learners. But, um, you know, the, the, the relationships border on friendships. I know, I know there is a fine line and, and I, I do think there is still that line, which generally is not crossed, one hopes. And, um, that, that is pretty much kept too. But there, there is a lot more, there's a lot of, of freedom that is attached to those relationships now and a lot more, um, you know, that they, they relate to each other, I think, a lot better in some ways. 
Well, that's what she says in the book. I mean, <clears throat> there are advantages, <clears throat> excuse me, and disadvantages. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> she calls the book Little Soldiers because there's a military style about the way they run their education system. And the children are not allowed to back chat and speak back to the teachers or flaunt the rules. And that worried her. She would have liked more flexibility and adaptability. <coughs> the one difference from the way we were raised, the parents are very involved. She said the parents spend a lot of time because when the teachers send back homework, they ask the parents to supervise and this is going to happen and tomorrow we're working on this and prepare your child with that. And now we're doing this and have you checked that? And they put pressure on the parents because there is so much competition from the day a child entered school, even nursery school, because they want them to get into good universities and top jobs. So they put enormous pressure on the children and by extension on the parents, a lot of pressure. <coughs> and she says she even relates a case where she had to be at work and there was some event at her child's school and she had to cancel her work commitment to be there because they would have censored her otherwise at school for not being there. Wow, that is that is Yeah. And quite, at one point she she she, she uh, her son didn't like eat like eating eggs. I mean he's a little boy. And she tells the teacher and the teacher says he will eat eggs. He will, because all the children okay. have eat eggs, it's good for them. And the child eats the egg, which you can't get him to do at home. And then the teacher says to her afterwards, if you want to say something to me, you say it to me privately, never contradict me in front of the child. Wow. So there's a very, very different way of doing things. And now I understand better why lockdown worked where they surrounded buildings. They said you can enter and exit once a week, sign your name when you're going to the grocery store to get goods. They took their temperatures. They sent them back. You were not allowed to go out more than once a week because they checked the register and people complied. But they've raised this way. Yes. They they so, uh, they would question it. That just it is what it is. It is what it is, yes. Yes, and that's why I think they were so successful in tackling this uh, yes. isolation and keeping that, as they say, flatten the curve. They could do it. Yeah, uh, they did. Marion, we're going to have to wrap that up right there. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you and listening to your recommendations, uh, which have been amazing. And as I said before, you're going to email those to me so that I can put them on the Facebook page for our listeners to check on. And um, obviously they can't go out and buy at the moment or have them delivered. But for those who are able to read electronically, maybe they could um, purchase those. And I think they've been fabulous recommendations. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat to me this morning. It's been amazing. And Thank you. Keep, keep well and look after yourself. And that, goes, and that goes for you who is listening to me and to Mary and Jill this morning. Take care, um, keep safe, stay home, and stay reading, and we will chat again next week.